Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis. We are on the beginning of Chapter 3, which is entitled, We Have to Talk About Systemic Change. Before we dive into this chapter, I would like you to please share this episode on whichever social media platform you may frequent. I'd like to remind you that every day at 8 o'clock a.m. on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Anchor, YouTube, SoundCloud, Anywhere audio is available, we put out a new episode of Rockford Reading Daily. This book we are reading from outside of the City Hall in Rockford, Illinois, as the May 30th Alliance continues their occupation to raise awareness to police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice in the Winnebago County area. Now, previously on Freedom is a Constant Struggle, we spoke about the death penalty, the importance of struggling against the death penalty. We spoke about the, the role that men will play in, and have to play in feminist struggles and the role in turn that white people will need to pay, play in struggles against racial injustice. We also spoke about, spoke about the role of prisons in our society, in this country specifically, and and again, we continue to speak about the role that intersectionality must play in our, in our struggles. So let's dive into chapter three. We have to talk about systemic change. Interview by Frank Barrett in Paris, December 10th, 2014. Frank, the last time we spoke about Ferguson, the crime had happened, but the grand jury had not given his verdict yet. Following the death of another black man, Eric Garner, at the hands of police, I'd like to talk about it again. Two black men died and the cops are walking free. What needs to change? Angela. First, I will point out that police killings of black men and women are not unusual. Robin D.G. Kelly wrote an article recently, which you might find interesting. You can find it on the Portside website. The name of the article is, quote, Why We Won't Wait, end quote. The article lists all of the black people who have been killed by police while we were waiting to hear the results of the Ferguson verdict. Frank, these killings all took place in a couple of months? Angela, exactly. During the time the grand jury was in session listening to evidence. I think that we often treat these cases as if they were exceptions, as if they were aberrations, whereas in actuality they happen all the time. And we assume that if we are only able to punish the perpetrator, then justice will have been done. But as a matter of fact, as horrendous as it was that the grand jury refused to indict two police officers for the killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, had they indicted the officers, I don't know whether anything would have changed. I'm making this point in order to emphasize that even when police are indicted, we cannot be certain that change is on the agenda. There is a case in North Carolina, I believe, involving a young man by the name of Jonathan Farrell, who was killed by the police after he had an accident with his automobile and attempted to get help by knocking on someone's door. The person apparently claimed that he might have been a burglar and the called the police, who immediately killed him. Now, in that case, the policeman was not initially indicted. However, the prosecutor persisted and eventually the grand jury did indict him. I guess the point I'm making is, we have to talk about systemic change. We can't be content with individual actions. And so that means a whole range of things. That means reconceptualizing the role that the police play. That means perhaps establishing community control of the police. Not simply a review of actions in the aftermath of a crime by the police, 
but community bodies that have the power to actually control and dictate the actions of the police. That means addressing that means addressing racism in the larger sense. It means also looking at the ways in which police are encouraged to use violence as a first resort in the connection between this institutionalized violence and other modes of violence. In relation to Ferguson, especially, it means demilitarization of the police as a demand that needs to be taken up all over the country. Frank, so we are talking about systemic change, right? Angela, exactly. Frank, deep down in the system. Angela, yes, absolutely. Okay, let's reflect upon those answers Angela just gave. So I'm immediately reminded of Makia Bryant being shot and killed right after the verdict of George Floyd or the verdict of Derek Chauvin came out who murdered George Floyd. I'm also reminded of I'm also reminded of Dante Wright who was shot and killed I believe in the midst of the trial of Derek Chauvin in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, which was pretty close to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And to me, those two murders completely in, completely articulate why it's not just enough for an individual to be arrested or for one cop to be arrested or indicted or even or even convicted. When you have systemic when you have a systemic issue, when you have a systematic issue, when you have an institutional issue, one of the earliest steps in fixing the institutional issue is addressing the individual. It's not a later step. It's not a latter step. That, that's not a sign that you're close to fixing the institutional problem. Uh, when you get, when you, the individual is held responsible, that's just the first step. And I think a lot of times we view it in this country as being the final step. For so many people, it's too, it's too gargantuan of a task to imagine that you're struggling for something bigger than a police officer being arrested, indicted, and convicted. Because that seems like such a hard thing to get. And... But it is at the point in which you realize that that single individual officer being held accountable is not enough. Uh, the, the city or the county paying a large sum of money to a single family is not enough. It has to be, it has to begin to be wholesale changes to the policies and procedures that continue to lead to people being killed by the police. And individuals cannot be scapegoated for the institution. And right now we're at a place in most cities in this country where the individual isn't even held accountable. And, and so when Angela speaks about the importance of systemic change and not just focusing on one officer being held accountable, I a agree with that 100% because I have seen and we have seen as a country how one individual officer being held accountable in Minnesota, in one area of Minnesota, cannot save the lives of black people in other places still dealing with police terrorism. But again, I think the last thing I'll point out, the reason that I believe so many people center in on just this uh, individual officer being arrested is because the task of addressing the institution 
seems just like such a, a gargantuan task and it just seems so hard for people to conceptualize. And I think that we have to do the job of articulating to people the ways in which this change can manifest and, the, and what we have to do for it to manifest for people to begin to believe that it is possible. And lastly, I'll add that three people a day are shot and killed in this country by police officers, which, eat, which is over a thousand people a year shot and killed by police officers in this country. That does not include the amount of people who are tased to death or choked to death or die in custody or, or die in a litany list of other ways from police chases to tear gas canisters. Uh, you know, there's a litany list of other ways that people are killed by police. So I just want to make sure that when, we say, when I say this number that people don't think that that includes everything. There are still so many different unique ways in which people's lives are lost by these institutions that don't fit into that number. And no number is acceptable. Three, two, one, zero point five. It's not acceptable for an institution that is supposed to be, that is deemed to be protecting and serving people to be murdering people. Frank. You mentioned this black man whose car had been broken down, looking for help, and the people pretty much straight away thought he was a burglar or something. Do you think this has to do with stereotypes, the way that society and the media portray black people as potentially dangerous, potentially criminal, creating this image in people's minds, creating prejudice? Angela. Yes, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, these stereotypes have been functioning since the era of slavery. Frederick Douglass wrote about the tendency to impute crime to color. He pointed out that a white man in blackface committed a whole range of crimes because he knew well that he would not be suspected by virtue of the fact he was white. On the other hand, all black people were subject to the ideological link between blackness and criminalization. Racism, as it has evolved in the history of the United States, has always involved a measure of criminalization so that it is not difficult to understand how stereotypical assumptions about black people being criminals persist to this day. Racial profiling is an example. The fact that driving while black can be dangerous. Recently, one of the trending Twitter conversations had to do with, quote, criming while white, end quote. A whole number of white people wrote in and described crimes they had committed for which they were never suspected, and one person pointed out that he and a black friend were arrested by the police for stealing a candy bar. The cop gave the white person the candy bar, and the black person was eventually sentenced to prison. Frank, this is true everywhere in a way. There's profiling in Paris, too. If you talk to someone who is a Moroccan or Algerian descent in Paris, they face pretty much the same stereotypes and fabrications as African Americans in the USA. Why do you think those stereotypes are fabricated? Is it a case of, quote, divide and rule, end quote, strategy? Angela, you know, racism is a very complex phenomenon. There are very important structural elements of racism, and it's often those structural elements that aren't taken into consideration when there is discussion about ending racism or challenging racism. There's also the impact on the psyche, and this is where the persistence of stereotypes comes in. The ways in which, over a period of decades and centuries, black people have been dehumanized, that is to say, represented as less than human, 
And so the representational politics that one sees through the media, that one sees in other modes of communication that come into play in social interactions, have equated black with criminal. And so it is not difficult to understand how they have persisted so long. The question is why there has not been up until now a serious effort to understand the impact of racism on institutions and on individual attitudes. Until we are able to address racism in that kind of comprehensive way, the stereotypes will persist. Frank, what about Obama? He didn't visit Ferguson, not yet anyway. How does he fit in the political picture at the moment? Angela, well, I think that one explanation, one of a number of explanations for the rise of a very interesting foundation for a movement against racism and racist violence and police violence, as we are witnessing at this very moment, has to do with the fact that the election of Obama was held as the possible beginning of a so-called post-racial era. Of course, it didn't make a great deal of sense that the election of one person could transform the impact of racism on institutions and attitudes of an entire country. But I do think that the fact that there is now a sitting black president renders the racism, the racist violence that people have witnessed, renders that violence more impactful. And no, Obama did not visit Ferguson. Eric Holder did, the attorney general. And as critical as I may be of that administration, I think it was important that Eric Holder pointed out, at least early on, that the militarization of the police was an important issue. Initially in Ferguson, we saw the military garb, the military equipment. Interestingly enough, during the last period, we haven't had visual images that emphasize the fact that the police have been the recipients of military garb, weaponry, technology, etc. Anyway, I don't think we can rely on governments, regardless of who is in power, to do the work that only mass movements can do. I think what is most important about the sustained demonstrations that are now happening is that they are having the effect of refusing to allow these issues to die. Frank, you mentioned that one person will not change the whole system. So how is Obama constrained by the system that actually got him elected? Angela, well, of course, there is a whole apparatus that controls the presidency that is absolutely resistant to change, which isn't to excuse Obama from taking bolder steps. I think that there are steps that he could have taken had he insisted. But if one looks at the history of struggles against racism in the U.S., no change has ever happened simply because the president chose to move in a more progressive direction. Every change that has happened has some, excuse me, every change that has happened has come as a result of mass movements. From the era of slavery, the Civil War, and the involvement of black people in the Civil War, which really determined the outcome. Many people are under, under the impression that it was Abraham Lincoln who played the major role, and he did, as a matter of fact, help to accelerate the move toward abolition. But it was the decision on the part of slaves to emancipate themselves and to join the Union Army, both women and men, that was primarily responsible for the victory over slavery. It was the slaves themselves and, of course, the abolitionist movement that led to the dismantling of slavery. When one looks at the civil rights era, it was those mass movements, anchored by women, incidentally, that pushed the government to bring about change. I don't see why things would be any different today. Frank, so do you think Ferguson can be the catalyst for a new movement? Could this be the tipping point? Angela, I do think that movements require time to develop and mature. They don't happen spontaneously. They occur as a result of organizing and hard work that most, after, most often happens behind the scenes. 
Over the last two decades, I would say, there has actually been sustained organizing against police violence, racism, racist police violence, against prisons, the prison industrial complex, and I think that sustained protests we are seeing now have a great deal to do with that organizing. They reflect the fact that the political consciousness in so many communities is so much higher than people think. That there is a popular understanding of the connection between racist police violence and systemic issues. The prison industrial complex has something to do with the CIA's use of secret prisons and torture that was recently revealed. So I think that we have a foundation for a movement. I won't say that there exists an organized movement because we haven't yet reached that point. But there's a powerful foundation and people are ready for a movement. So, along with intersectionality, this book, this book puts a very high priority on movement building and on organizing and on the foundations of movement building, the foundations of organizing. And for me, I find it very important to, very important to incorporate these concepts that Angela Davis is speaking on into the organizing we've done here. When she speaks about the most important work is the behind the scenes work that goes on. When she speaks about the fact that in order for a movement, the type of movement we need to, uh, to properly address these issues to emerge, it's going to take the buildings of foundations and it's going to take sustained organizing and grassroots organizing. Those are all things that are major tenets of the May 30th Alliance. When, when, hold on, let me find this spot here that I, I had highlighted. One second. I think what is most important about the sustained demonstrations that are now happening is that they are having the effect of refusing to allow these issues to die. That sentence to me is the epitome of what the May 30th Alliance has represented in this city, in this county, in this area since May 30th of 2020, since its inception. And that's the refusal to let these issues go to the bottom of the agenda again, the refusal to let these issues go to the back of people's conscience again, a dedicated, determined, persistent effort to make sure in whichever way possible, in any way possible, in every way possible, that these issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice are being confronted by people on, and not even just an everyday basis, but on, a, in an hour, on an hourly basis. That's why we have the memorials up at Say Their Name Square. It's why we insist on continuing to put messages in chalk on the sidewalks around downtown Rockford, Illinois. It's why we continue to have the city market protest every Friday. It's why we continue to create content and put content out that speaks about these issues. And it's why we protest when these parades include the police in them. We do all of these different things because of a refusal to let these issues die. And, and I think in the continuing and continually breathing life into these issues, we have done the job of heightening the consciousness of the city, of awakening people in the city to the realities of these things. And again, there's this, there's no spontaneous movement that emerges that resolves or addresses these issues. It has to be done deliberately. It has to be done purposely. It has to be done day by day. It has to be done 
in a in an organic way and the the first steps of organizing the first the first steps of movement building i believe this book does a very good job of laying out to you and intersectionality to me is one of those those first steps okay and and again we're just conti- we continue to be reminded of the the fact that individuals do not manipulate systems but systems manipulate individuals when we speak about the Obama presidency and i do think that that the fact that a black man was in the white house when the this movement or the beginnings of this movement emerged is very important because it lets us know that our what we should be striving for what we should be attaining for is not any individual's success or any individual's acceptance into the to the system it has to be fighting for a complete dismantling of the system and a rebuilding of one that is equitable okay frank talking about the prison industrial complex and the prison abolition movement in the u.s what can movements nowadays accomplish what lessons did we learn from the 60s and the 70s angela well I think we learned in the 60s and the 70s that mass movements can indeed bring about systematic change. If one looks at all of the legislation that was passed, the Civil Rights Act, for example, the Voting Rights Act, that did not happen as a result of a president taking extraordinary steps. It happened as a result of people marching and organizing. I can remember that in 1963, during the Civil Rights era, before the March on Washington that summer, in Birmingham, Alabama, there was a children's crusade. Children were organized to high, children were organized to face the high power fire hoses and the police, Bull Connors police in Birmingham. Of course, there were some who disagreed with allowing the children to participate at that level. Even Malcolm X thought it was not appropriate to expose children to that amount of danger, but the children wanted to participate. And the images of children facing police dogs and fire hoses circulated all over the world, and that helped to create a global consciousness of the brutality of racism. It was an extraordinary step. And this is something that's often forgotten, the role that children actually played in breaking the stronghold of silence regarding racism. So I guess during the 60s and 70s, we did really learn that change was possible, not ultimately the kind of change we really wanted. I shouldn't put it that way. I should say not enough change because change did occur within the sphere of the law, which was extremely important but we did not experience the economic change and other modes of structural change that we will need in order to begin to root out racism. Frank, that's the thing. How can movements pressure even the most reluctant politicians? Angela, well, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the president during that era, he was a reluctant Southern politician who clearly assented to racism, but it was under his administration that important laws were passed. So I think movements can indeed force reluctant politicians to take steps. If one looks at the example of South Africa, who would ever believe that de Klerk would take the position he ended up taking? That was because of the movements within South Africa, the South African movement outside of South Africa, and also the global solidarity campaign. Staying on the U.S. side, what's the future of black politics? Frank asked that. Angela's response. Well, 
I don't know whether Obama played a major role in developing the future of black politics within the U.S., but I think the real question is about the future of anti-racist politics. Frank, you touched on it before, the fact that Obama was elected, the fact that Obama being elected maybe actually was a block somehow. Angela, actually, I think it's important to conceptualize black politics in a broader framework now. We can't think about black politics in the same way that we once thought about it. What I would say is that in many ways, the black struggle in the U.S. serves as an emblem of the struggle for freedom. It's emblematic of larger struggles for freedom. So within the sphere of black politics, I would also have to include gender struggles, struggles against homophobia, and I would also have to include struggles against repressive immigration politics. I think it's important to point out what is often called the black radical tradition. And the black radical tradition is related not simply to black people, but to all people who are struggling for freedom. So the future in that respect, I think, has to be considered open. Certainly black freedom in the narrow sense has not yet been won, particularly considering the fact that huge numbers of black people are incensed in poverty. Okay, I pronounced that wrong. That is pronounced ensconced. And the definition is establish or settle someone in a comfortable, safe, or secret place. Wait, is that the right, the right word? Am I looking at the right word? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, okay. So, considering the fact that a largely disproportionate number of black people are now in prison, caught in the web of the prison industrial complex, but at the same time, we have to look at Latino populations and we have to look at indigenous populations, Native American people. We have to look at the way in which anti-Muslim racism has really thrived on the foundation of anti-black racism. So it's far more complicated now, and I would never argue that it's possible to look at black freedom in a narrow sense. And particularly given the fact that we have the emergence of a black middle class, the fact that Obama is the president is emblematic of the rise of black individuals not only within politics, but also within the economic hierarchies. And that is not going to necessarily transform the condition of the majority of black people. Okay. I want to, I want to reflect on the answer Angela gave to the question Frank asked, how can movements pressure even the most reluctant politicians? And she spoke about Lyndon B. Johnson and the pressure that was put onto Lyndon B. Johnson that led to him passing some of the bills that he passed and pointed out that he was a reluctant Southern politician who had capitulated to racism throughout his political career. And to me, understanding that, understanding how many, understanding how much change happened during that time period, understanding the manner of change that happened during that time period, and understanding that it was Lyndon Johnson who was the president during that time period is essential to understanding the importance of having people outside the system exerting leverage and exerting pressure. A lot of times people say, say to me, well, you should run for office or you should, you should change the system from the inside. And I tell people all the time that, well, we, we don't need people on the inside to change the system. The people who are currently inside the system can be adequate are, are adequate enough to change the system. The people who are already currently working to be inside the system are adequate enough to change the system. What we need is more people that are outside of the system, that are in communities, that are in neighborhoods, that are everyday people dealing with everyday issues to become informed about these issues and then to 
turn that information into knowledge and then to act upon that knowledge and and to regularly and continually act upon that knowledge to build up pressure, to build up leverage and to change the to change the culture of cities, to change the 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 consciousness of cities. And once that happens, once you begin to once that work begins to set in, the people who are inside the system have no choice but to capitulate to the pressure and the power that is being exerted upon them. The reason that politicians do the things that they do now is because they think that they will get elected by doing these things. They think they will be able to maintain their positions by doing these things. And the moment that you can change the change the hmm, what am I what's the word I'm looking for? Once you can change the culture in a city or the culture in an area, culture in a community, it changes what those politicians have to back or the, the, the stances they have to, to have to get elected. When you know, it's part, my, the best example I would give is when you go to different cities, go to different counties, go to different states, different politicians run on different platforms. If you go to a city that is more progressive, you'll see the even the Republicans be more progressive and the Democrats be more progressive. If you go to a place that's more conservative, you'll see the Democrats be more conservative along with the Republicans being more conservative. And to me, what that shows you is that as, as, as activists, as people involved in the struggle, we have to be thermostats that can not only gauge what the temperature and the climate of the room is, but also can adjust and change the temperature and the climate in the room. And the politicians that are currently in power now are ones that can only gauge and are willing to only gauge what the temperature and the climate of the room is. And then they base their political stances off of that climate. And so we have to learn to do the job of changing the climate, if that, if that makes sense. And so in the 60s, that's what happened. Lyndon B. Johnson would have been just fine to keep the racist policies and procedures and legislation on the book, on the books that were already on the books. He was a segregation segregationist from a segregationist state from Texas. But because he felt the way to make sure he continued to be in office and maintain the power that he had in office and to maintain the power that his party had, he had to begin to capitulate to some of these demands that, that were being pushed by this black liberation movement. And so, and, under, and that's why understanding history is such an important part of, of, of struggling, because once you understand things that people have historically been able to do, it puts into context the things that you have the capabilities of doing now. Okay. Frank, I think that's very interesting. I'm not sure how to put it, but do you think that when a group of people, and I mean the example of South Africa is telling as well, gets to high places in terms of politics or business, Money then comes before blackness or the fact of being Native American. I was in Chile recently, and the Palestinian community in Chile is one of the largest in the world. There are something like 450,000 Palestinians in Chile. Angela. Oh, I didn't know that. Frank. While I was giving lectures in Chile, I visited Villa Grimaldi, where Pinochet, where Pinochet tortured and killed many people. People told me that about 60% of the Palestinian community in Chile, 
which is one of the wealthiest in the world as well, supported Pinochet during the regime. Not because Pinochet tortured and killed people, but because Pinochet was a neoliberal. They were interested in keeping their wealth and privileges. So before condemning the torture, they were looking at their wallets. The same happened in South Africa. Angela. It's all very complicated, and particularly during this era of global capitalism and neoliberalism. In South Africa, the rise of a very powerful and very affluent black sector of the population, a black bourgeois, if you will, the potential for which was never really taken into account, at least not publicly during the struggle against apartheid. It was assumed that once black people achieved political and economic power, there would be economic freedom for everyone. And we see that that's not necessarily the case. We have basically the same situation in the U.S. I've been actually visiting Brazil frequently for the last period, and Brazil is now on the cusp of some major breakthroughs with respect to racism. I think they have the opportunity to choose whether to follow the example of the U.S. and South Africa. So it surprises me that Palestinians would have been supportive of Pinochet, but I don't find it entirely unbelievable. Frank, not all of them, right? Angela, no, you said 60%, which is substantial. And I think it's extremely important that over the last period, we've seen the development of solidarity campaigns that have brought different struggles together. Palestinians who have been inspired by black struggles in the U.S. should inspire black people to continue the struggle for freedom. But on the other hand, Palestinians perhaps can look at the problems inherent in the assumption that the rise of individual black people to power can in fact change the whole situation. What is going to lead to freedom for the Palestinian people is going to be a lot more complicated than money. Okay, let's reflect upon that. So the statement that really stands out to me is the statement that capitalism is not the response to racism or capitalism will not defeat racism. And that's not something that we just read Angela say, but so I sort of sum up some of the things she said in that, in those few words there. And I think one of the reasons it's so important to become informed about these issues before you begin to, to espouse ideologies or espouse beliefs is that so often when you learn about racism and, and how racism operates and the unequitable employment, unequitable education, unequitable living resources that black people have in this country, you think to yourself, well, I just got to get enough money or build a company that makes enough money and then I will be able to solve these issues. And if it was that simple, then a very long time ago, these issues would have been solved because there have always been black people with 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 money or with wealth or with with affluence. But having that the further back you go, having that wealth and money and affluence while being black. It was worth less and less, you know, it didn't mean that you could still be if you were black and free in the north during the time in which the North didn't have slavery and you had somehow accumulated money and resources, you could still be brought back down to the South and put in slavery and, and, and grabbed and accused of being an escaped slave. If you were rich and black during the 50s or 60s, when 40s, any time where Jim Crow existed, you couldn't go live in whatever house you wanted to live in. You still had, there were still racial covenants on houses. You couldn't send your kid to whatever school you wanted to send them to. And if you wanted to get something to eat, you still had to get the food out the back of the the diner, the back of the restaurant. And so all of those things really put into perspective that it was not money was not simply going to be enough to to 
beat racism. Also, one of the leading causes of being lynched once it was it began to be investigated more by Ida B. Wells was black people acting uppity or black people being successful or having more. So even having more put a, a target on your back, being having money put a target on your back. And and so then a lot of people will say, well, then if it's not money, then what is it? And I think that in order to be able to defeat the racism that exists, we need collectivism to fight against it. And I think that fighting against racism with collectivism looks like challenging racist policies and procedures wherever those things come from, challenging them at whatever cost may come. I think a lot of times the reason that money is viewed as power is because we have gotten into the place where for enough money we will put our morals or our ethics to the side. And the moment that we reverse that and that it's not enough money that can make you put your morals or your ethics to the side, money loses some of the power in the system. And But that again, that is a, a much easier said than done, which is why you have to sort of have a, a understanding of capitalism, why you have to understand the negative of impacts of capitalism, and, and why you have to understand that just you individually getting as rich as you possibly can will not help the masses of black people. Okay, we're going to wrap this episode up here. We will be back tomorrow to finish up this chapter. And will we finish this chapter? Yeah, I think we'll be able to finish this chapter uh, tomorrow. But if not, either way, we'll be back tomorrow to continue reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police, terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And I will holler at you tomorrow at 8 a.m.